Hey folks, just want to give you a little update about what's been going on here. Uh, this is my good friend Manuel Schmid. Uh, he's from Switzerland. Uh, I got to meet him last year. In fact, he was uh, one of the folks that uh, organized the uh, trip that we were on last year. And uh, he's a pastor of a rocking church. You, you guys really have an outstanding church. It's just vibrant. They jump up and down during worship services. and <laughs> It's fantastic. And he's doing his doctoral dissertation on uh, my writings and stuff like that. So I'm really honored to have you over here. You came over here just to have some talks with us. And it's, it's been a blast. It's been an absolute blast. Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the kingdom, what, uh, what's going on over in Europe and Switzerland uh, in terms of the kingdom movement. Yeah, it was, it's just... Uh, it's just a privilege to, to be able to, to um, listen to Greg's sermons and, and reading his books. And there has been quite a, a, a movement in our church and beyond our church of people who are getting in touch with that vision of, of a, a Jesus-looking God and their, uh, this, this paradigm of God looks like Jesus. A lot of uh, people really get Get, they, they, they get it and, uh, and it's, it's doing something with their lives. Uh, for example, uh, one um, youth pastor of our church, he, he started listening to Greg's sermons and, and reading his books two years ago and it did something incredible in his life. It, it just turned things upside down and, and he, was, he was talking about uh, the kingdom and the Jesus-looking God and, and, and the, this, this non-violent revolution going on all the time and I've never <laughs> seen that before. It was really, it, it, it so changed and transformed him and, and a lot of other people and I just want to I just want to thank you guys that you you are making this possible by by uh, releasing Greg to to write and to and to preach and and that's that's just a huge a huge blessing even in in, in Europe in Switzerland it's that's uh, that's great. Well, we're really honored to uh, just be used by God to impact in that way, and uh, it's just a blessing to be networking with you and networking with your church and then fellow uh, fellow churches. Uh, that's part of what we want to be doing here. Is this, as God's raising up this this movement, um, people all over the place are getting it, but we're not doing much to talk with each other and and you know. Uh, form an identifiable movement, and that's part of what we're doing here. Uh, yeah. This brother has a sister church of Woodland Hills, uh, which you call Woodland Hills Basel, or, or <laughs> whatever. But anyways, so God bless you guys, and God bless Seth as he's going to stand in the pulpit and deliver the word. Take care. Yeah, goodbye. I'm Seth. Uh, it's a real pleasure and honor to be, uh, to be here with you guys two weeks in a row. I'm going to be picking up on this series that we started last week called Wholehearted. Um, last week I talked about what kind of effort and what kind of commitment does the kingdom and does a king like Jesus ask us for? Um, giving our best and giving our whole selves to the kingdom of God. Like why, why wouldn't we say yes to what it is that God's asking us for? Uh, and then this week I want to talk to you about the heart. Um, what kind of heart gets shaped by a king that looks like Jesus? Um, I want to start off today with a, a story um, from an author that's one of my favorites. His name is John Ortberg. He's a writer uh, and also a pastor of a church in San Francisco. He wrote this book called The Life You've Always Wanted. And in chapter 2, he tells a story about a guy. He changes his name to Hank, you know, to, like, to protect the privacy of this person. Um, this, is, this story is called The Man Who Never Changed. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it because oftentimes his humor was coming at someone else's expense. 
He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a big head. So he worked to make sure that everyone stayed humble. His gift in ministry was called cranial downsizing. (laughs) His native language was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. And although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? And Hank paused to reflect for a second, and then he replied without smiling, yeah. The deacon said, well, tell your face. (laughs) (coughs) But as far as anyone knows, Hank's face never did find out about it. Now, occasionally, Hank's joylessness actually produced unintended joy for other people. There was a period of time where his primary complaint around our church centered around the music. It's too loud, Hank protested. He protested to the staff, to the deacons, the ushers, and eventually even to first-time visitors of our church. So we finally had to take Hank aside and explain that complaining to complete strangers was not appropriate. He would have to restrict his complaining to his circle of friends, and that was the end of it, so we thought. A few weeks later, I got buzzed by one of our staff members on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see me. I'm here to check out a complaint, he said. As I tried to figure out who on the staff would have called OSHA over a church problem, he began to talk about decibel levels at airports and rock concerts. Excuse me, I said, are you sure that someone was on the church staff that called? No, he said, if anyone calls, whether they're an employee or not, we have to check it out. Suddenly a light dawned on me. Hank had called OSHA, and he told them that the music at the church was too loud, and they made a federal case out of it. By this time, the other staff had gathered in my office. It's not every day that OSHA shows up at your church. We don't mean to make light of this, I told him, but nothing like this has ever happened around here before. Don't apologize, the agent said. Do you have any idea how much ridicules I faced from my coworkers since they found out I was going to bust a church? (laughs) So sometimes like this, Hank's joylessness ended in comedy, but more often it produced sadness. His children didn't know him. His son had a wonderful story about how they met at a dance, but he never told his father because his father didn't approve of dancing. Hank couldn't effectively love his wife or his children, let alone people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigmentation was different from his own. Whatever capacity he might have once had for joy or wonder or gratitude had slowly died. He critiqued and judged and complained. His soul got a little smaller each year. Hank wasn't changing. He was once a young cranky guy, and he grew up to be a cranky old guy. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that no one was surprised by it. This isn't God's vision for what happens to human hearts in the church. To get a little picture about what God's vision is, let's look to the book of Jeremiah, where we get this promise that's captured of what God will do to human hearts. He says, In this brand new covenant that I will make with Israel when the time comes, I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts and be their God, and they will be my people. They'll no longer go around setting up schools to teach each other about God. They'll know me firsthand, the dull and the bright, the smart and the slow. I'll wipe the slate clean for each of them. I'll forget they ever sinned. 
Now, to be a Jewish person and hear this problem is something fairly striking. Because when you're a Jewish person, part of the nation of Israel, and you hear about a law that got written, you would immediately think of the Ten Commandments. What kind of materials did God write the Ten Commandments on? On stone. And this book in Jeremiah promises a day where the law won't be written on hard stone. The law will be written on soft human hearts. No longer will people have to refer to a book outside of themselves to figure out what does love look like or require. It'll be inside of us. The sad part is that that doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen to Hank, and honestly, it doesn't happen to me. Just yesterday, my wife and I went to grab lunch at a little counter-service pizza place that's over by our house. I had some finishing touches for this sermon to make, even on Saturday, and so I was feeling a little bit under the gun, and I needed to move pretty quickly on to lunch and then back home, and I was feeling pressed. You probably never do anything like procrastinate like this, but I do, so I was feeling pressed by that. Now, I like it when I'm at a place and everyone knows what to do. You know, I get irritated kind of when people don't. Um, I don't like going up to the express line when people have 15 items. The sign says 10. I'd like people to stick to that. So I, I go to this pizza place, and they have a tight little line, and we, uh, we get behind this, this group. It's a family. Uh, it seems like a woman. It's her, uh, her adult daughters and their grandchildren. It seems like they're out for a day in the city, and they stop by one of my favorite pizza places to get some pizza. But um, they gather at the door, and instead of walking in the door, they seem like they're discussing whether they want to walk in or not. And so what I'd like them to do is slide to the side so those of us that have already decided can go in. But they don't. They form a human cork at the front door that nobody can get through. So I think they, like, assigned a president of their group and a secretary, and someone made a motion and then seconded it, like, took forever. And finally they get in the line, and I, I can't quite get around them, so then I'm waiting. And then what happens? Then they pick up the menu because they don't know what they want. And again, they don't move to the side and let you go by. They're, like, talking. And in my head, my body is remaining calm with a slight smile on my face, probably a little bit like Hank's. But in my mind, I'm grumbling and complaining. I can't believe it. What's taking so long? Like, um, how did you not know what you wanted? You get to the front. It's a pizza place. Were you surprised that there was cheese and pepperoni and sausage? This is like new news to you? What's taking so long? I can't imagine what's going to happen when we get to the Coke machine. That's going to be like a 45-minute conference. The whole time I'm thinking, don't you know that I have a sermon to write about what kind of heart honors God and being grateful and patient? Come on. I have important stuff to do. Okay. All right. So now you've heard my confession about what a terrible person I am. Um, I want to show you a story about Jesus uh, in the book of Luke chapter 17. Uh, it's an important story about one of the things I want to talk to you about today. It's, it's gratitude. It's thankfulness. I think that one of the laws that gets written on the human heart that we know, we know no one has to teach us about, we know it, um, is gratitude. In the book of Luke, chapter 17, Jesus has an interaction with, with ten folks. It says this, As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance, which is what lepers are supposed to do. In, in Jesus' day, Leprosy, uh, it was kind of a mysterious disease. People didn't know how folks got it. They didn't know how it was contracted. And what you do when you don't understand how a disease gets spread is you just stay away from it. Um, so lepers lived in kind of a little community of isolation. Uh, because of their disease, they can't be around people who don't have leprosy. And, um, 
Maybe at first glance that doesn't seem like much when we read about leprosy. But, you know, like imagine your life. Imagine the circle that you have around you of people that you depend on, that you need, that you relate to, that you love. I started thinking about this. If, if I had leprosy, all the things I wouldn't get to do. I wouldn't get to hold my wife. We wouldn't get to hold hands walking around the neighborhood. I wouldn't get to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to see my son graduate high school. I wouldn't be able to hug, to hold hands. I wouldn't be able to high-five. Uh, I would live in a community of isolation, making new friends, but disconnected from the people that I deeply cared about. Leprosy was a tremendous burden. So when you find ten people and you see Jesus walking by, it's not a surprise that what the story tells us is that the lepers cried out to Jesus, have mercy on us, because we're not getting mercy anywhere else. He looked at them and said, go show yourself to the priests. Now, this is important. Why would Jesus say, go show yourself to the priests? In, in Jesus' day, th- there were, from time to time, whether it's like by God doing a miracle or by some incredible power that human bodies have, from time to time, people were healed from leprosy. It was mysterious. Folks didn't know how it happened. But before you could go back to your home and your kids and your wife and your job, you had to get checked out. We had to make sure that like, you weren't just faking it. Uh, that your leprosy really was cured. And so you would go show yourself to the priest. The priest often had this role of being the connection between sick and hurting people and society. So they played that role of being priests, and they would show themselves to the priest. But I want you to notice something in the story. Um, He said, go show yourself to the priest. Were they healed yet? They weren't healed until after they went to show themselves to the priest. It says, as they went, they were cleansed of the leprosy. There's kind of an important kingdom principle underneath this, which is that God often asks you and I to take a primary role in the thing that we're asking for. He says, God, show mercy on us, these lepers say. And he says, okay, I'm going to show you mercy, but you're going to take the first step. There's a lot of important first steps that get taken in the Bible. And when you take a first step towards something that you're asking for, when you're willing to take that first step, the Bible calls that whole world, that calls that faith. They step out in faith, and as they're going, they're healed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back to Jesus. said, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. How many guys got healed from leprosy? How many came back and said thanks? One. See, there's a couple myths about gratitude. Um, One of those myths is that if I had more to be grateful for, I would be more grateful. And do you know what? That's a total myth. Um, You know, if I just had a different spouse who complained less, or if my kids were more like those other people's kids and didn't have all those problems, if my boss would just, if I could get a new job, if this paycheck was just a little bit more, all the if these other things happen, you would be grateful. And the truth of the matter is, it has nothing to do with that. People say the same thing about generosity. Uh, They did surveys uh, uh, within churches Um, talking about people's financial giving. And I know people give a lot more, and the kingdom is about more than giving to your church, but this study was about the connection between church giving and income. And so they did a study, and they, uh, they, they just categorically proved that actually the more money people make, the less they give away. 
And, but people often tell themselves, when you ask folks, like, what's the primary reason that you don't give more? People always say, I don't have enough. And yet the more we get, the less we give. This is totally a myth that if you get more stuff, you become more grateful or more generous. You just don't. The second myth is that you can just try harder to be grateful. That the way the human heart changes by human effort. You know, the old, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. If you just put a little elbow grease into it, you can change it. But the truth of the matter is, that's not true. Like, for instance, sometimes I'm around here, and especially lately, uh, I have a couple friends that like to run. You have a friend here that likes to run. His name is Greg Boyd, and he keeps talking about this marathon that he's going to run for World Vision. And whenever he talks about running 26 miles and how fun it's going to be, my eyes roll back in my head, and I get totally blown away by that. Because for me, running is nothing but sheer torture. I started working out a little while ago. If I run a mile and a half, at the end of that mile and a half, not only am I wheezing for breath, I'm calling the front desk for an oxygen tank, it's a mile and a half. If you said to me, Seth, at the end of the sermon today, you're going to go run a marathon, what percent chance is there that that's going to come true? Exactly 0.00% chance. That is never going to happen. I couldn't try hard enough to run a marathon. However, if you told me that I would have a year and you, you bribed me with some sort of reward that would be good enough, I, don't, I can't imagine what that would be. But let's say you could come up with something and I was motivated. What's the chances that for a year I could train and every day get a little bit better and one day run a marathon? What's the chances of that? It's 0.01. <laughs> but there's some kind of hope, right? Um, training is a better pathway to getting where you want to get than trying. If you want to grow in gratitude, you don't try harder, you train to do it. Now, I've been through some training in my life of various kinds. I've mentioned in the past that I was adopted. Um, I was adopted out of a lawless street gang of preschoolers in Los Angeles. That was me and my friends under no supervision. And I was adopted from that kind of street gang of preschoolers into a third-generation Marine Corps war hero family. It was painful. <laughs> My parents had to break me like a wild Mustang. So some of this teaching that they did for me was really hard, and it really hurt. But others of it was about kind of culture. How do you behave? Bas basic social rules that me and my lawless street gang and preschoolers didn't do. Like, for instance, none of my preschool friends told me to put my napkin in my lap. My mother totally did, and when I didn't do it, she was not happy. Um, they showed me where a salad fork goes. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a salad fork. Some of you just found out there is such a thing as a salad fork. And it goes to the left of the main fork, right? Very important. One of the things that my parents taught me was about thankfulness. And it was, um, it was Christmas time. Christmas time, we had like a regimen. We would all put on our pajamas. It's kind of like our Christmas uniform, our pajamas and our robes. We would usually get a new one every year. And then we'd show up to the opening of presents like it was a board meeting. All of us had a legal pad and a pen because we recorded for each gift who it was from what the gift was and something, we were, something specific that we were thankful for. Because in the McCoy clan, if someone gave you a gift and didn't receive a thank you note within five days of giving that gift, you would like violated a deep family tradition and rule. And none of us wanted to do that. That was my training for saying thanks, my training for gratitude. And it was just earlier this year when I ran my gratitude marathon, the thing that tested my limits. In, uh, in 2013, I ventured out on a treacherous quest to help a little coffee shop in my neighborhood morph and grow into something uh, of its full potential. 
I couldn't do it alone. And in order to do this, I had to ask some friends to join me. And I make a common mistake, which is I imagine that everybody else is like me. I know you never do this. I do this. So when my friends said, yeah, they would help, uh, my assumption was they're just like me. The reason they're signing up for this journey is though, even though it's going to cost us a lot and there's going to be blood, sweat, and tears, there's a chance that on the other side of that, there will be glory. And that motivates me, you know, risking a bunch of, of your time and talent and treasure for this other thing that you could get that's worthwhile. So I imagine like we're all doing this because of the, like the, the challenge and rising to it. But you know what I learned in this? They weren't doing it because they loved the challenge and the risk. They were doing it because they wanted to help me. And so when, when the thing turned around and we got accolades and people wrote us up in the newspaper, um, the truth is that I, I owed them a debt. One of the truths about gratitude is whether you recognize it or not, the place that you're at and the place that you've gotten to, the things that you've accomplished, you've done it because other people have helped you. All of us owe someone else. This leper that came back to Jesus, um, he recognized that he owed a debt to Jesus. Um, one of the struggles of, the, of turning this little coffee shop around with some of these friends was that sometimes in challenges and adventures, everybody doesn't make it back the same. It's sad to me that in this latest challenge, um, a couple of my friendships suffered, and they may not recover. I'm hoping they can, but they may not. And when I was thinking about what went wrong, I realized one of the parts of the breakdown was that I forgot something that my parents taught me in the training school of Christmas thank you notes. And the, the lepers in this story forgot that too. Okay, imagine if you were in this story and you were a newspaper writer and you were going to do an article on this miraculous event, 10 lepers get healed, right? And the one leper who came back, you already have his contact info, but you got to track down the other ones. And let's say you go to interview them in their homes. How many of those nine lepers, when you sit down and say, tell me, how do you feel about Jesus? The fact that he healed you and gave your life back. How many of those lepers would say, Jesus is incredible, I'm super grateful? How many of them? All nine of them would. Would any of those lepers go, you know what? Jesus ain't nothing special. He healed me from leprosy, but big deal. I could have done it myself anyway. I'm not all that thankful. How many of those lepers would have that attitude? None of them. The truth is they were all grateful, but they make a classic mistake that you and I maybe make too, which is I feel grateful for something. Do you know what grateful feelings come across to those other people? Like, when you have gratitude in your head and your heart that doesn't get expressed out of your mouth, do you know how other people experience that? They experience it as ingratitude. I mean, we know about this, right? We give a kid a birthday present at a birthday party. First of all, we write these really nice words on a card, and then they don't even open the card. They just move it to the side, open the present. And after they open the present, you expect them to do something, don't you? You expect them to say thank you, to come give you a hug. What do you call a kid who moves the card off to the side, opens the present, runs off to play with it, and never says anything to you? What do you, what do you, what do you call that kid? Ungrateful. Spoiled brat. All kinds of other things. A terrible, miserable kid. Um, there's, there's two truths about gratitude, at least two, you know. One of them is that we all owe a debt of gratitude to people that have contributed to our life. None of us got here on our own. And then the second thing is gratitude unexpressed is experienced by other people as ingratitude. And I had to sit down and write letters to these friends of mine and say, I'm so sorry. 
Because I didn't say thank you nearly enough. And the words I should have said before, I'm going to say them now. And, and I wrote them out. Um, who do you owe? Have you expressed the gratitude that's in your head and your heart? Is it maybe time for you to pull out a card or a letter and write out some things that should have gotten said before but didn't? It's not too late. Okay, so I want to talk to you about gratitude. I also want to talk to you about the law of gift. And to do this, we're going to look at a story that's fairly common. Um, Almost everybody, whether they're Christian, however much they know about the Bible, knows this story because it's an incredible story. It's a beloved story. Books have been written about it. I can't imagine how many sermons have been preached. We're going to take a look at it. It comes out of Luke chapter 15. You're going to know this story as the story of the prodigal son. Uh, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. Younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. <laughs> oh, I would have. I tell you what I would have done to that kid. His father didn't do it. His father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Just like, think about this. Think about the father taking the wealth out and feeling like, my son told me he wants the money before I'm dead. Like, wh- what this son sees me at is like, a, he sees me as a check. And instead of like hammering that kid, he goes, okay, here's, didn't even, gave him his full share. Here's your full share. You're, you're free to do with it what you want to. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. What do we call this these days? College, right? <laughs> wasted it all. About that time, his money ran out. That happens too, Right? A great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Okay, pause just for one second. Now, we would be grossed out by someone being at such a tough spot that food for pigs looks gross to us. But pigs altogether aren't that gross to us because for those of us that are not vegetarian, we actually love pigs because we actually love bacon. So pigs are kind of gross, but also kind of delicious. No offense, vegetarians, but for those of you that aren't. Um, But that's not how a Jewish person would hear this story. We have to remember that Jesus was Jewish. His first audience was Jewish. His stories always had Jewish overtones to them. Do Jewish people eat pigs? Pigs are unclean. There There is not a picture... Like, for Jewish people to look at this story and to see a son that went from by his father's side to in the pig pen is so far down the road of brokenness that Jews can hardly imagine it. This is a person that you wouldn't want to be around. This, this kid is bad. Okay, let's keep going in the story. Um, all right, let's move on to the next slide. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself... At home, even the servants had food enough to spare. Here, I'm dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father, like finally comes to his senses. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me on as a hired servant. See, he imagines that his father, there's consequences to what he's done. And he imagined that he's going to suffer those consequences. But maybe for the father, there'll be a little bit of mercy, enough that he could re-enter, not as a family member anymore, but as a servant. So he returns home to his father. While he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. I try to imagine as a father what, what kind of emotions I would be filled with. Do you know what kind of sermon I would have ready for this kid when he came home? 
Can you imagine the chores list that he would have when he came home? It, he, he might not want to come home. All right, let's go back to it. So, but that wasn't the feeling of the father. The father was filled with love and compassion. Compassion's a powerful thing. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son starts to give him the speech. He had it already. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Look what the father does in the next slide. His father isn't even listening anymore. He doesn't even hear what his son's saying. He's already turning to the servants, and what's he planning for? He's not planning for the punishment. He's planning for the party. Bring the finest robe, get a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, kill the calf. We're going to throw a feast. The son of mine was dead. The Bible does a really brilliant job of helping us understand death and life. Because in the Bible, sometimes people are physically alive, but they're dead. And other times people are physically dead, but they're alive. That's one of the incredible things about the Bible. He was dead and he's returned to life. He was lost and he's found. And so the party began. Only problem is, that's not the only son. There's another son in this story who's not yet at the party. So the older son was in the fields working. When he returns home, he hears music and dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told. Imagine how this brother feels about that news. The brother's back. I'll tell you what I'd be feeling like. I can't wait to see what dad does to him. He's got it coming to him. Older brother was angry and he wouldn't go into the party. His father came out and begged him. Look at that. His father didn't demand that he go inside. He begged him. But he said, all these years I've slaved for you. This is totally what happens when we lack gratitude and when we live in the world of getting what you deserve. Then our work is no longer joyful relational work. This relationship with the Father's turned to slavery. I've slaved for you. I've never refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me one thing. What? Can you really believe that the Father never gave this kid one thing? You didn't give me one thing. If you're a parent, you totally can hear this, right? You you didn't give me anything. He gets everything. It's not fair. When this son of yours comes back and he squandered all your money on prostitutes, you're going to throw a party? Look at the older brother is judging in a way that he has no right to, and the father has every right to judge and is refusing to. Father says to him, look, son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this day. Your brother was dead and has come back to life. He's lost and now he's found. It's amazing how quickly we can turn from one son into the other. Uh, This last year in February, I headed down to Austin, Texas to visit my brother. Now, this is my real half-brother. We have the same mother, but different fathers. We were adopted together in the same family. He had a lot harder time with the adoption because he was older. I hadn't seen him for a long time. He has his own road of pain and recovery and healing that he's on now. While we were catching up a little bit about old times, I shared some vague memories I had before we were adopted and during the adoption process and what life was like in foster care. But because he was older, his, his experience of each of those episodes was so much more clear. And while he was filling in the gaps that I had missed, I was just thinking, I'm so glad I didn't see that. I'm so glad I didn't have to hear that. And I'm so sorry that he did. We both had the experience of being abandoned. We were both abandoned sons, literally. 
Now, my birth mother named me Seth Gabriel, so my middle name is Gabriel after the angel, uh, which is ironic because I behaved anything like that or anything but that. Uh, when I was adopted, my parents decided to keep my name exactly the same, mostly probably because I already was disobedient enough, let alone if they changed my name, I'd have no idea who they were talking to when they were trying to punish me, so they kept it the same. Um, but also the name Seth, uh, it means chosen, which is to me literally true. I went from being an abandoned son to being a chosen son. <laughs> now, many years after rejecting my own parents, wandering into wild living, I too ended up in a pen. It wasn't a pen for pigs, it was a prison. I served three months in military prison because I got so involved in drugs and addiction and sin, I almost lost my life. I remember being in that prison and seeing that I was going to die if I didn't get out of California. It took years and a few starts and restarts, but I, I came back home to the home of the Father. I made a mess of my life, but God the Father doesn't live in the world of wages. He welcomed me back into the home of grace. I went from an abandoned son to a chosen son, from a prodigal son, and then back home again. Um, now, in my, my first job was in the fine dining establishment called McDonald's. I was a, I was a, I was a cook in the back. And I'll never forget, like, I, you know, I worked and worked. After I got two weeks, then I got this thing called a paycheck. It was my first paycheck. Do you remember the first paycheck you ever got? I opened that thing up, and I looked at that, and I couldn't believe how much money that was. I mean, I had, like, washed cars and mowed lawns and sold avocados on the street for, like, five or ten bucks to go roller skating because I'm old enough that that was actually cool back then. But I looked at this check, and this was more money than I'd ever had. And I remember thinking, like, I can't believe they pay me this much money to do this. I was so thankful, you know? And then my last paycheck that I opened, you know, I was like, this is all they pay me to do this? You know? It's amazing how soon something turns, like, from gift to entitlement. It happens so fast. But then when I really think about it, um, I'm not part of a family that operates according to the world of wages because in the family of the Father, the truth is that we don't get what we have coming to us. And what we have coming to us is exactly what we don't deserve. Like at the end of the day, the reason why my hope is to live in a world where I think about life primarily as gift is because the truth is I already have what I want most. I've already got it. I already have a home. That home is with the Father. I've been forgiven for the incredibly terrible things that I've done in my life. Let me just pause for one second. Some of you haven't. Some of you still feel like you're outside of the home of the Father, and you long for forgiveness, but you don't have it. And I want to tell you, it's right there for you. It's not hard. It's a challenge to live it out. But you don't have to work to get it. You couldn't work to get it. It's not a wages kind of transaction. It operates in a world called grace, where what you deserve, you don't get. And the thing that you get is what you didn't deserve. And I hope that you would. There's a way that you can be connected back to Jesus so that your sins are no longer counted against you. And you can come home to the Father. And that Father will act exactly towards you like he did to that son in the story. 
And if you have questions about that, there's going to be people at the end of the service up here that would love to talk to you, and so would I. The thing about this story is oftentimes I've heard this sermon preached like the goal is to be like the prodigal son, like realize that you're living in the pig pen and run back home, and maybe that is the truth of what you should do. I'm certain that part of this story is like, don't be like the older brother. That's the world of wages. Trust me, you don't want to live there. Except we do oftentimes want to live there for other people because we love when other people get what they have coming to them, right? But we certainly don't want what we have coming to us. Don't be the older brother. The truth of it is that the goal is for that we could be like the father. Like that's the point of the scripture. It's like, We are supposed to be children of the Father. Earlier in this same giant book called the Bible, we're told that we were created in the image of God. In fact, part of the whole Christian life is that we can train and transform our own hearts so that our natural response in situations like that story, we respond like the Father because we don't have to refer to a manual of how to love people. That happens from right inside of us. The goal is to be like the Father. Um, in Romans chapter 13, Paul gives us some wise advice about this. He gives us some good general financial advice. Stay out of debt. Don't run up debts. <coughs> it's a bad idea. In the world of debt, what happens is when you owe someone else, they're in power over you, and you're a servant to them. And you would want to stay out of that relationship as much as you can. Except in one case, because there's no way that you can avoid it. There's one debt that you have that you totally can't get out of. doesn't matter how much you pay, what kind of credit card counseling you go through. Bankruptcy court can't help you with this one. It's a debt that you can never get out of. It's the huge debt of love that you owe to each other. Look how generous God is in this. Who do you really owe the debt to for your forgiveness, for your healing, for your transformation? Who do you really owe it to? God. Who has the right to demand that bill? God does. Where does God actually want you to send that payment? To each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. And then he goes, um, he gives a, 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 an interesting description for some things that would sound common to us. Like, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Here's what he says. Don't sleep with another person's spouse. Don't take someone's life. Don't take what's not yours. Don't always be wanting what you don't have. Ooh, that's a hard one. And any other don't that you can think of, it all finally adds up to this. You can't go wrong when you love other people. Loving someone else is literally the only response that you can ever have that's never wrong. You don't need a manual of like what to do in this case or this case. If you respond in love, it will always be the right response. And when you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. It's a debt that you could never get done paying. Now, I asked someone real important to help reiterate some of the things from this sermon. One of the things that drives me crazy is when there's like a giant gap between the stories and the Bible verses and Monday. Like tomorrow, some of you are going to get up and go to junior high. And some of you are going to go to high school and college. Some of you are going to go to a college called your job where you're like still learning and growing. You're going to have coworkers that bug you. You're going to have a boss that's on your nerves. Tomorrow, real life is going to come at you. And who cares about this sermon then, right? So the main thing that I wanted is for you to be able to take some things with you. Um, So I asked the president on this video to give us a few helpful hints about how we can take some of the ideas and put them into practice. Now, before you get too excited or offended, because whichever side you're on, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm like my twin brother on the video. I'm from Switzerland. 
talking about anything. I'm not talking about the real president. I'm talking about the YouTube sensation named Kid President. And he's going to be brilliant. Jesus said that kiddos have lots to teach us. I think he's going to have some fun stuff to say. Let's pay attention to the screen, and then I'm going to come back with a final word of blessing before we go. 20 things we should say more often. Number 20, thank you. And not just on Thanksgiving, every day. Number 19, excuse me. Number 18, here's a surprise corn dog that I bought you because you're my friend. There'll be more corn dogs, more happy people. This is a good idea. Corn dog for you, corn dog for you, corn dog for you. Number 17, I'm sorry. Number 16, I forgive you. Number 15, you can do it. But don't say it if it's something I can't do. Number 14, another thing that we should say more often. I have barbecue sauce in my shirt, too. Before you say something about the barbecue sauce on somebody else's shirt, take a look at the barbecue sauce on your own shirt. Number 13, please. Number 12, everything is going to be okay. Number 11, oh, you got me a corn dog, too? You shouldn't have, buddy. Number 10, I don't know. I know a lot of people who need to say that. My sister. Nine. You're so awesome, I named my dog after you. Wait, wait, wait. That could hurt someone's feelings. I mean, boat. I named my boat after you. Wait, who even had the boat? You're so awesome, I legally changed my name to yours. Wait, that's super creepy. It, it, just tell people they're awesome and mean it. Number eight. Hello, person I never met before. Here's a high five. Number seven. My sports team is not always the best sports team. It takes a big man to say that. Number six. Nothing. Sometimes that's the best thing you can say. Number five. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything, but it's just really funny. <laughs> Number four. I disagree with you, but I still like you as a person who is a human being and I'll treat you like that because if I didn't, it would make everything bad and that's what lots of people do and it's lame. Whew, I need a water break, y'all. It's okay to disagree, but it's not okay to be mean. Number three, sometimes you just gotta scream. <laughs> Number two, life is tough, but so are you. Sometimes we all need to be reminded to keep going. Number one, something nice, anything. If you can't think of anything nice to say, you're not thinking hard enough. So what about you? What do you think people should say more often? Leave a comment below and let's hear it. Oh, and I got a bonus one for you. Something that we should say more often? Let's dance. dancing, huh? Okay. Really, at the end of this sermon, my main hope for each and every one of you is really just one thing. That tomorrow, um, if you add up the amount of moments that you had in your day, if one of those moments could transform from grumbling and complaining to gratitude and gift, that, that would be a successful sermon. Um, would you stand and let me say a word of blessing over you, okay? Jesus, you taught us what gratitude and gift looks like. You thank the Father for every single thing that he gave you. 
Um, you taught us that your law of love and the debt that we owe to the Father because of love is one that we'll never be able to fully repay. And I pray that tomorrow in our lives, the law of gratitude and the law of gift would transform the way that we see the world and the way that we see our lives. Send us out into the world to spread your love everywhere that we go. In your name I pray. All right, the prayer team is going to be up if you have anything we can pray for you about. Thanks for being here. Have a great week.